We're starting today Isaiah 40, starting at verse 1. And as we begin, we're going to say our prayer, praying for Paul Krause, who, Krause, who had a, a stroke. And we'll pray for Judy Moore, who had a fall and an elbow injury. And thanks to God for Judy Fox's birthday. So why don't we pray? Lord, we thank you for bringing us together as those who share in the hope we have uh, for leading us to find in the prophet Isaiah and in all the prophets Christ and the, the good news that is proclaimed of comfort through him. We pray that you bring comfort and encouragement to Paul Krauss as he's recovering from a stroke. Uh, give him a, a good recovery and, and good uh, restoration in your good and gracious working. And also we pray the same for Judy Moore who's injured her elbow. We pray that you give her a quick and good healing, remove any pain or discomfort in your merciful working. And finally, Lord, we give you thanks today uh, for the birthday for Judy Fox and the, the blessings you've given her throughout her life uh, found in Christ and in your gracious provision. Continue to bless her and help her to celebrate your goodness. Open our eyes, Lord, now as we turn to your word and begin our study now uh, for however many weeks as we turn to the prophet Isaiah. Amen. Okay, we're jumping to chapter 40. Uh, it's not uncommon that people will divide the book of Isaiah at this point. In fact, uh, the first half of the book, chapters 1 through uh, 37 or so, have uh, the Gospels there, but it's mostly a um, forecast of what's really outlined in the second half of the book, the coming of the Messiah. So the, the second half of the book, chapters 40 and following, give great detail and um, spend a lot of attention on uh, the coming of the Messiah. So we're going to be doing a lot of that. You also find in, in between the first half of Isaiah uh, this interlude, which is like a historical dialogue and interlude with King Hezekiah. And so it, it is a natural breaking point in the book. But the content really starts to elaborate differently too as well. You could almost say it's like some of the letters in the New Testament where it starts with law and then there's gospel. Doesn't mean there is no gospel in the first half of Isaiah. There's a lot, uh, but it's kind of like that. So you'll see it kind of reflecting a New Testament letter in the, the law-gospel format. Predominantly law in the first half, and there is law in the second half, but predominantly the gospel shines and overcomes. I didn't come up with any clever title, so I just thought I'd call it Isaiah Part 2. Uh, but the title for today's section is Declare the Good News. So let's start by reading maybe just the first two verses. So Isaiah, I'll start us off and then later on I'll ask if someone wants to read for the group. I'm reading from the NIV 2011 today and I'll probably switch throughout the study. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And we'll pause there. Just to get some context, why, why do the people need comfort? Well, we have to go back to Isaiah's time. We're in the year 740 BC. That's about when he started writing. So 740 BC. Anybody familiar with what the situation was like at that time for Judah and Israel? It's before Jerry's time. <laughs> I think they had a lot of rules to try to keep. Okay. Certainly the, there was the law, and probably um, you'd either have people dismissing God's law or you'd have people trying to live by God's law instead of viewing it as they should, you know, the, the thing that would direct them to the Messiah. So yeah, uh, the comfort would have been law-based. And so you'll, you'll see, particularly in the first half, you know, God's saying, I don't care about if you try to follow my rules. You've, that's not going to fix what's been broken. Yeah. What else is going on in Judah and Israel? Because we still have the, remember there's the northern kingdom, that's Israel. And there you have, um, you know, Jesus taught and preached around the Sea of Galilee and Capernaum, the Galilee of the Gentiles. You got Israel is still intact. That's the, the kingdom that broke off from the sin of Rehoboam. And you got Jeroboam and you got the, 
the southern kingdom with Rehoboam, the offspring of Solomon, they've divided it. It never gets reunited, really. Not in the, the centuries that follow. In the northern kingdom, if you remember our study on the kings of Israel, and remember I made that chart? Bad king, bad king, bad king, bad king. Jehu kind of started out good, but bad king, bad king, bad king, bad king. The whole line of kings in the northern kingdom were corrupt. And it kept getting almost worse and worse. They'd cycle, you know, like go down and they'd persecute. The northern kingdom was where you'd find, you know, the, the cry of someone like Elijah, you know, the, I'm the only one left and wondering what's going on here. The southern kingdom was different. Southern kingdom centered in Jerusalem, uh, not too far from Bethel, the capital of the northern kingdom, but Jerusalem, the original, this God says where I'm going to put my name. This is the, the city that David, you know, has all the prophecies tied into. You had good king, king that turned bad. Bad king, bad king, bad king, good king, good king, king that, you know, so there's this, this wavering pattern in the southern kingdom. So the northern kingdom was one that was attacked first, and they got the warnings first, that they've turned aside from the Lord. And what's going to happen, Isaiah's prophesying in 740 B.C. Picture you're only about half a generation or, or maybe 20 years now away from the destruction, the complete destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel. And it was the nation of Assyria. They were the, the empire that was just coming on the, the world stage and, and taking over things. And the Assyrians uh, would end up going from town to town, city to city, destroying all the villages and non-fortified cities and raiding them. Basically picking off the weak on the, the fringes. And so the northern kingdom kind of knows, ah, what are we going to do? And they're, they're turning to desperate measures for rescue. But it's not just the northern kingdom. Um, Assyria is reaching its tentacles down all the way through the northern kingdom to the southern kingdom as well. So they're, they're traversing across the land of Israel and they're coming into the towns of Judah. And so even Jerusalem itself is under threat at this time by the Assyrians. So both kingdoms are feeling like they're about to topple over. Both of them are in desperation. And Isaiah's prophecy is going to go on until 680 BC. So he starts about 20 years before the fall of the northern kingdom, and he's going to prophesy, prophesy for another 40 years. And it's during those 40 years that right in the middle of his prophecy is the destruction of the northern kingdom. So basically, halfway through his prophecy, the, the southern kingdom's thinking, uh-oh, are we next? So picture that. Picture, um, you know, half of... Canada has been invaded and they've destroyed all of Canada and they've got their eyes set and they're raiding the northern states in the United States and the capital city of the United States is saying, how long until we're next? That's kind of the, the context. So, in fact, if you look just at the previous chapters, Jerusalem was under siege by the Assyrians. So imagine that. The, the capital city is surrounded, the king is hauled up behind his walls and he's holding back the army of, uh, what, 100,000 troops surrounding the city. So there's our context. And then out of that, you have Isaiah saying the most unexpected comfort, comfort. So definitely a message you'd have to take by faith, right? If, if that's the context and the setting to hear there's comfort for us. Um, thought I had here, some might say that we get comfort from looking inward, or they prescribe quiet meditation, which you seek to empty your mind of all thoughts. So are you feeling stressed? They'll, they'll counsel you in life. Well, you need, to, you need to meditate. You need just to get rid of the stress of life and empty your mind of all thoughts, put on some peaceful music, and you'll find comfort. Don't Others, what's that? Yes, and the incense or surround yourself with precious things or things that make you happy. Others teach we just have to search out God to find peace. So if you look hard enough, you'll find the truth and you'll find God. Let's use this section, just these two verses, to describe how God conveys his comfort to us. Yeah, notice God is giving, uh, we'll find this throughout Isaiah's prophecy, the, 
the person he's addressing, whether it's him speaking to Isaiah or him speaking to the nations or whether it's God directly speaking, that, that voice will change. But here you have him saying to Isaiah, speak to Jerusalem. And he's addressing actually through Isaiah, my people. So my people speak to Jerusalem. He has to convey it. And Jerusalem could search all day for good news and they're not gonna find it unless someone's gonna tell them that good news from God. So speak to Jerusalem. And you, you gotta love the, the way it's translated here, speak tenderly. In the, the Hebrew, it's literally speak to the heart of Jerusalem. So speak to them where they need to hear it. And proclaim to her. So like Paul says, how can they hear if someone isn't sent? How can they know unless they're, they're taught and preached to? Yeah, so yeah, you don't get our comfort in this world from inward, looking inward, or getting rid of information. You get it from receiving information as God sends his word. Uh, here sent by the prophet Isaiah to us, and Isaiah is being told, and the people are being told, proclaim, speak. And it's in the spoken word of God. Uh, the word just doesn't come by a, all of a sudden this feeling of peace washed over me. Uh, a lot of Christians will say that, that that can be true if that's based off of the word of God, that that's a God-given peace. But if it's just because you um, saw a squirrel and all of a sudden realized you know, something that's not based off of God's word, it should be God's word has, the power of the word has brought you peace. Okay, so speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Who is included under the command to speak? So we have a command here, speak. Who is supposed to speak? Isaiah. Certainly Isaiah, yeah, Isaiah would be one. Um, however, the, the word here, you, you can't see it in English because English doesn't have a plural second person, you know, plural imperative that's different from the singular. So we would say speak to one person, and we'd say speak to two people in English. But in Hebrew, this is plural. So you might translate this, um, if you're trying to capture it, speak y'all, or speak you all. Everyone speak, or it's plural. So who could this be that God wants to speak? Certainly, you're right, Isaiah would be one. The other prophets. Yeah, there were other prophets at this time, a faithful people who would have heard God's word, Isaiah was not alone. He is the one that has the message still recorded for us today. Uh, but he does have contemporaries like Amos and others who were also speaking at the same time. Yep. Well, then they have Jewish leaders, priests. Sure. The people that are in charge of instructing the people would have been the, the priests, the Levites. Instead of you know, offering their sacrifice and cowering and hiding God's word, they were told here, speak. Weren't they worshiping some other gods at that time? Right. So in Jerusalem, there were faithful priests and there were unfaithful priests. Um, you had generations before, uh, men like Josiah that would, would support and sent out the priests literally to instruct the people. But you also had like a 50-year span that follows and 50 years before where you have evil kings. So it's a mixed group. Um, you'll have faithful priests and unfaithful ones. Yeah, it says my people. So really, that, that could include anyone who hears Isaiah's message is supposed to carry this message. And then Isaiah's prophetic, right? Uh, think about John the Baptist. We're going to see that later on in verse 3 and following. So these words are fulfilled by John the Baptist. Uh, when he has words of comfort to speak to Jerusalem, uh, you know, repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of God is near. Um, he's coming. So God called John to preach as a prophet and also take up the, the mantle and carry this message. Really, um, the main focus here is those in the representative ministry. So it would have been priests, uh, other prophets who are called by God. Ultimately, all of God's people carry this in the universal priesthood. So all believers, you are being told, you know, speak comfort. Of course, who's, who's Jerusalem? Speak to Jerusalem. Literally, the city Jerusalem first fulfilled this. But John the Baptist was called to more than just Jerusalem. Jerusalem is meant to symbolize or mean the people of God, the city of God, the, the church of God, 
We'll see that throughout this book. Um, there's a neat picture we'll see later on that Jerusalem eventually is going to say, whoa, where are all these people coming from? They don't even fit my walls. And God says, no, your, your walls aren't big enough. In fact, my message goes beyond you. Okay. Um, how does this, verse 2, how does this guide our mission as a congregation and our vocations as, as believers? What is our job as a, as a Christian body? Present the Bible to people. Yeah, word. speak the word. Uh, God tells you to speak his word. Yes, he does want you to care for others. He does want you to show love to one another and to this world. But our mission starts with proclamation. Discipleship. It's centered around proclamation and teaching and revealing the will of God to people. Uh, that's one of our, our goals as a church and should be one of our goals as, as an individual Christian believers to proclaim, to share. What message? Can we describe it? What message is given to offer comfort? Their sins have been forgiven. Yeah. Here the, the picture of forgiveness is a payment, but that's essentially what it amounts to, right? That there's a, a debt forgiven, uh, that you no longer have to pay for your sin. Isn't that the greatest comfort? The, the people might have been looking for comfort, comfort my people. Assyria is going to no longer bother you and you will have riches in your harvest. That's all good, but the comfort starts with forgiveness. Uh, that all the things that would bother you, that you're not right with God, that's taken care of. The beginning of real comfort and peace is your sins have been paid for. We're going to see the picture of re redemption coming up, this idea that God paid a price. How else can we further describe that comfort? Well, you always know that God is listening. He always hears. Um, no matter what we've done, He still hears <coughs> us. Sure. So even though they're suffering greatly, God sees their plight. He wants them to have this message. He's there for us always. We'll see that too. Yep. He said that her struggle is over. My Bible says her warfare is ended. Yeah. The warfare is over. Literally, they're still going to have warfare for many years. But the warfare of what Israel means, one who wrestles with God, that's done. You don't have to wrestle against him anymore. You're not at war with him. He's paid for your sins. And notice the source of that forgiveness. I think that's key, isn't it? The Lord's hand. Yeah. It's not from your own hand. It's from the Lord's hand. And think of how literally that was fulfilled, that God paid for the sins of the world with his own hands. Uh, since we had nothing to offer, he had to pay the price. And uh, Paul says in Romans 5, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. It's kind of a hard picture to grasp if you don't get grace. That You mean if I'm going to sin more, that grace is going to even abound more? And that no matter how great my sin is, God's grace exceeds the amount of my sin? Look how that's described here. How much payment for sin? Yeah. So the price was paid. Uh, sin demanded a price. You know, you can't just say God, God couldn't just declare, you know what, there's evil, forgiven. No evil anymore. Evil harms. Sin kills. It destroys. And God allowed that pain of sin to be absorbed in himself. Uh, the price of sin is, is the, the curse, the, the division, everything. He took it upon himself. Sin did cost him dearly. And it was from his hand. He says, okay, sin, which you've fallen into and you've, you've loved it and you lived in it, it's destructive. Let me take that and I'll pay for it. And double, that's, that's the, the comfort of the gospel, that there's no sin that could be too much, right? Now that we know we're covered. And notice... Um, freely from the Lord's hand. We're going to see as we get, like, especially to chapter 55, he'll say, come without cost. This is freely given. God's provided it. 
Okay, other questions or comments on verses one to two? So we're not tracking too bad here, right? 10 minutes a verse. Someone wanna read for us the next section? Let's say verses uh, three through five. Judy? A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. <clears throat> and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind together will see it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Okay. So what do we see next? What's going on here? Someone's talking and preparing the way. Yeah. God says, comfort, speak, and there's a voice speaking. And the, the setting of that voice, uh, the way that it's quoted in the New Testament is a voice of one calling in the wilderness, comma. In the Hebrew, there's a different division of the, the words. They both basically mean the same thing. It doesn't mean the, the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament or the New Testament is wrong. John was a voice calling in the wilderness and literally he was saying in the wilderness, you know, in this dry, barren land. So a single voice calls out. And as that voice that, it's like a herald calls out, what's that herald trying to do? Prepare the way for Christ. Yeah. And, you know, God doesn't need us to prepare a way for him, right? He could just come and demolish us. He could come and judge us, or he could come and carry out his will. So the preparing really is not for God's sake, it's for our sake. When, when John the Baptist came, Matthew says he fulfilled this. Uh, he came to be a, a voice calling to prepare the way for the Lord. And people said, who are you, John? And John says, I am a voice. Really, John was saying, I fulfill Isaiah 40. Um, basically, not only saying he is that supreme messenger that would come, also prophesied in Malachi, the, the voice of Elijah coming before the great coming of the glorious day of the Lord. John is also saying, I'm going to usher in the coming of God himself. And a herald um, in the ancient world would make the way ready for a king to get the people aware, one, to know that the people know he's coming, and the way that the herald would try to get them ready, what is his work here? And who's his audience? This voice, this herald before the coming one. Baptizing. We'll see in the New Testament that John carries this out with baptism. It says a uh, baptism for repentance. So God gave him the tools. As it's described here in Isaiah 40, how does the herald do his work and who's, who's he targeting? Yeah, so that's significant too. You know, comfort Jerusalem. But this is a message that is supposed to go out from Jerusalem to all people. So John, it says, was in Judea in the desert proclaiming a baptism of repentance and people across all of Israel were coming to him and all the region of the Jordan. But the message is for all people, every valley. All people will see it. Isn't that true too? Wasn't that fulfilled? Uh, what this voice said in Isaiah's time echoed until John the Baptist came, echoed from John the Baptist to the disciples and Jesus, proclaimed that it would be beginning in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Okay, and that the work is heralds to level a way for the coming of God, make straight, prepare a highway, raise up the valleys, make the mountains low, Basically obstacles, right? So get rid of any obstacles as the king is about to come. Ultimately, this will happen on the last day, right? You know, God's going to come and there'll be no obstacle that you want in the way. Uh, but all this work of removing obstacles will be worth it because the glory of the Lord will be revealed. It doesn't say God might be coming. He will come. And you're going to see the glory of the Lord. Uh, that phrase, glory of the Lord, um, reminds you of what appeared when they first came out of the desert in Sinai. And 
You look at Mount Sinai and the glory of the Lord was on the mountain, or when the temple was built by Solomon, the glory of the Lord filled it. Or later on, you'll see the glory of the Lord as the angels appear and say, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to men, comfort, comfort. The angels, the angels are part of that speak, right? Uh, part of the herald. And the glory of the Lord was seen that night, but all people will see the glory of the Lord when he comes again. So that work of um, making the way plain, removing obstacles, obviously this is a picture, right? Literally, a, a herald would try to make the way ready for a king, make it easy for him to traverse so he could come to the people. But if this is a, one preparing the highway for our God and we're going to see the glory of the Lord, what are the obstacles that we want to remove? Sin, unbelief, rejection in our hearts of his kingship, uh, basically bringing down pride, right? Uh, if, if you want to turn this into picture language, you're bringing down a, a high mountain, leveling it or lifting up a valley, making everyone ready. It's pride gets in the way, definitely. Sin gets in the way. Stubborn necks and stubborn hearts that refuse to turn aside from idolatry. Other thoughts, comments on that section there? So notice how um, the voice changes kind of quickly in Isaiah's prophecy. You have to look at the context. So it's comfort, comfort, speak. And all of a sudden you have a voice calling. So we're, we're going to see that throughout the letter. Try to pay attention to the, the paragraph divisions probably help in your translation, in your Bible. They, they break those voices into different paragraphs generally. All right, let's read just one more verse. Um, or one more section, how about six to seven? Or probably seven, six to eight fit good, right? So does someone want to read for us verses six through eight? Bethany? A voice says, cry, and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people is grass. Oh, Andy? Um, yeah, we can pause there. Four to seven is a good read there. So even the best of mankind is fading like grass. Some of your translations might say, all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The NIV 2011 has all their faithfulness. The point is, what's the best that people can put out? The, the most glorious thing that people, mankind can produce. God says, that, that's like the grass. We, we're familiar with, you know, we get a lot of rain right now in monsoon season. What happens? Quickly, everything turns green. You got the blossoms in the desert. But how quickly that withers or is, becomes fuel for the fire, right? So the best that all people can put forward, their glory and the, the best product they can put forward is like the flowers of the field. Flowers look glorious for a moment, a brief moment, and then they just wither. When do we need that reminder? <laughs> we always struggle with pride. Can you give any examples when this would be a very pertinent reminder? Okay, yeah, Pride Month, which details the proudness of, I'll do it my way, regardless of whatever God says about his word and his will for me and my body, which I deny he owns or has purchased in any way. So the glory of mankind, I wouldn't personally describe Pride Month as glorious, but rather, as Paul says, God gives them over to their, their hearts for things, for the degrading of their bodies, really. And the best people can put forward? Even that. It withers. So Pride Month will wither. It won't last. As much as people want to glorify the human body and make it into their object of worship, 
It will fail. I, I said all, all the time, but really, you need to be in the Word in daily, at least, because so many times when I'm reading the meditation or I'm reading the Bible, it kind of slaps me upside the head and says, okay, Dad, you need a reminder. So right. I, I do need it all the time, it seems. So. I think uh, the Apostle Peter gets that really right in his letter when he says, you know, humble yourselves under God's mighty hand. That's probably the, the first sin and it'll be the last sin that we refuse to humble ourselves under God and that we would say we are in charge of our lives. So it's not just Pride Month, you're, you're definitely right. You know, the, the churches that, that try to mix that in with Christianity are, are far mistaken, they're glorying in the wrong thing. Uh, but also, what about the times where we put, take pride in human strength? or in human wisdom, and think that we have it all figured out, but it's not connected to the, the Word of God or based on the Word of our God or His working or His plan. Uh, we might say, I've, I've got my home, I've got my insurance, I've got my vehicle, I've got my savings. That's not going to last. Anytime we take pride in anything apart from God, um, we need this reminder, don't we? Even our, our wisdom you know, our plans. You know, Israel at this time would be looking to other nations for help. Um, this was an important reminder for them because as Assyria is coming, you know what they're doing? They're not turning to God, they're turning to Egypt. Egypt, can you come fight the Assyrians for us? We'll, we'll join with you, Egypt, and we'll join forces, and we can maybe stop the Assyrians, or we, maybe we can make an alliance with the Edomites, or maybe we can just work together and we can fix this. And they're turning every direction, grasping at straws, except for finding the Word of God and what God's plan is. God has told them that they, they will fall, that because of their sin it's too late, um, that they, they need to repent, He will save a remnant. But they refuse to, in their pride, refuse to acknowledge that. Well, it's been ongoing ever since way back with Moses. We've got to make a covenant. covenant. Uh, follow my decrees and things will go well with you. I mean, throughout the history of these people. He told them, yeah. yeah. Time and time again, followed by decrees. That's all you got to do. Israel had a, a special promise that they could take confidence. God promises to bless us. If they, have a, they had a two-sided covenant, if we follow his word. Um, they would see that over and over again, but still wouldn't take it to heart. That, that's why we needed that one-sided covenant of forgiveness, of payment. Because the sinful heart would even reject the promise that God would bless us if we serve and love Him, that's still not enough to motivate us. We, we break, break our covenant, we break the law. Yeah, kingdoms come and go. I think this reminder too is for nations. So when it says all men, you know, the, the nations will be coming up later on in this chapter. So the Assyrians might have thought they were everything, right? Their God had conquered the God of Israel. And later on, generations later, you'd have the Babylonians come along and, and they'd be thinking, our God just crushed the Assyrians. And all these nations, when they come to power, think they're at the height of everything. What nation doesn't fall prey to that when it's at its height, to think that they don't need God anymore? So God reminds people and nations, you're nothing. In fact, uh, look at uh, the connecting thought here. The breath of the Lord blows on them. So agree or disagree, the devil causes all bad things. Right. So our, our sinful nature, we are to blame for evil. The devil doesn't, for most of the world, the devil doesn't have a struggle. They're already lost. He, he's got them in his, in his sway and they're blinded. But also for Christians, he knows he can play to their sinful nature and they'll, they'll fall readily into their own traps of sin. Uh, and finally, do we have to blame the devil not just for temptation, but for the bad things that come? It's us. And who sends the bad? God justly and rightly sends what we would call calamity or bad. We can't call it evil because it's according to God's will. But from our perspective, terrible things happen and God is the, the cause. Look what it says. The breath of the Lord blows on them. He doesn't say, I'm going to send the devil after you. He says, I'm going to blow on you. And as I blow on you with my breath, you'll wither up like grass. 
And it's God who is our judge, God who sends. In fact, throughout this, this uh, prophecy, it's going to be God saying, I sent the Assyrians. Doesn't mean he's to blame for the evil atrocities the Assyrians did. The people themselves deserved it, but God's the one who ordained and sent them. God is in control. So God causes life to end. God sends struggle. Uh, God takes credit even for the calamity and the destruction that this world faces. We get the blame because of evil, because of our evil, but God gets the credit for what has come. He's in charge. He's not responsible for evil, but he does send judgment and testing, causes life to end. Now, should that terrify us? Yes. It should if we're against him. But it should also remind us, where do we turn for forgiveness? Where do we turn when trouble comes? You know, obviously, witchcraft and devil worship won't help because God's in charge. Turn to him. Turn to what he gives you for strength, promise, forgiveness, for hope. And then tied in with this, verse 8, it's very closely connected. So we should read that. The grass withers and the flowers fall. And I love how that echoes. You might say, didn't Isaiah just say that in verse 7? You know, this is also poetry. And when you hear that repeated, it's kind of like what you hear in Genesis 5. And then he died, and then he died. And then, why are you repeating it? Because this is the cycle of life, right? The grass withers and the flowers fall. Oh, there's more glory. The grass withers and the flowers fall. Don't forget. But, in strong contrast, he concludes this section here. The word of our God endures forever. So what stands in strong contrast to mankind's glory? God's glory. God's glory. His glory revealed in his word. Peter quotes this in his letter when he says, the word of the Lord in 1 Peter 2 endures forever. The, and notice it says, and this should be a comfort, the word of our God. The people of Jerusalem as they're surrounded by Assyria, as they're facing all these calamities, they know God is bringing judgment, but he's still our God. Uh, the word of our God endures. And our God has said comfort. Our God has said we've been, our warfare has ended. Our God has said that he is coming. Yeah. So in other places in scripture, it has that picture of God's people finding shelter and safety in God's hands or under his wings. So isn't that an interesting picture that his people find safety in the same hand that is sending the calamity. Right. Like how different it is to, be a, to belong to God than to, to, not be, to not be God's own. Sure. The hand of the Lord is, is used in two respects, with the law for his might and his power and his judgment, but also for his protection and his care and provision. Yep. The word of our God endures forever. In the message of a glimmering hope for mankind is the enduring word of God. You know, people will try to come up with their own solutions, but there's one that will not fail. Uh, both God's law and gospel, notice says the word of our God endures. Uh, both his, his will will never end and his goodness and promises will never end. So when he brings good news for Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the church can be sure it will be fulfilled. Of course, we will we'll see as we read on the messianic prophecies that were fulfilled here. Uh, God's word does endure. Okay, what are we at for time here? I can't quite see the clock because there's a glare. Okay, so we can take a few more verses, right? How about verse, uh, verse 9? Someone want to read verse 9? Pat? Pat? Okay, so if I heard that correctly, you had a Zion, yes. you who bring good news? Zion, Herald of Good News. Okay, so it's like it's addressing Zion and then Jerusalem, Herald of Good News. Yeah, the NIV puts that translation as a footnote, so that's one possible way to say it. And then mine presents it as, you who bring good news to Zion, you bring good news to Jerusalem. So I guess there's 
there's two ways of translating that. And that's, I think, because of the word et in Hebrew, which can either mean a direct object or with or for. I'd have to look at the Hebrew again. But just so you're aware that if you hear Pat reading and it sounds different from your translation, it's a translation. Um, I think the, the one that NAV puts in the main thing fits the context. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, because he said, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. However, the translation that Pat's using fits as well. Zion and Jerusalem are to proclaim this, wor this word, right? Okay, let's look at what, is, what are God's people to proclaim. You who bring good news, so whether it's the evangelist or whether it's Jerusalem, you know, the church, which is this world's evangelist. Lift up your voice and shout, go on a high mountain. Uh, this, we're going to lead into it more with chapter, uh, I think, 59. Um, but this is part of the inspiration for that hymn, Go Tell It on the Mountain, right? Lift up, do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah. Remember, the towns of Judah are facing attacks and under raids and things that they think they're under God's judgment, uh, but they need to hear how they're, they're forgiven. Here is your God. So, any evangelist really fits this title, right? You who bring good tidings, whether it's the church, Jerusalem, or, or you. What's the command? Yeah. Not just tell them about your God, but actually present him, right? Yeah. So, here he is. Here's God. How do you present God to people? It's in his word, yeah. Here is God. He's found. Uh, Jesus says, I'm with you, and he is found in his word. He comes to us in his word. But also, literally, this was fulfilled too. Here is your God. Think of Isaiah you know, prophesying the coming of John the Baptist. Look, the Lamb of God. Here is your God who comes in human flesh to save you. Or think of the, the proclamation that will be found as we get to say that throughout history in the church. Here is God, look. He comes to you in, in water and the word. He comes to you in his scripture. He comes to you with bread and wine. Here is your God. So that, that God comes to us is, is good news. And notice too, he has to throw in there, don't be afraid. Because uh, the, the world and the devil and our own sinful flesh will try to silence that proclamation that God comes to save. Uh, but this is really messianic, isn't it? That here's God, here he is. Behold, God comes. Or as the, I think the King James has, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So let, we get a description that follows now. So turning the page, to, or I don't know if your page numbers match mine. I made myself a handy dandy teacher's guide here. And you're welcome to look at these notes if you miss something or if you miss a class. I just made some notes for myself as I worked through all this. 40 uh, verses 10 and 11. So here's your God. How is he described? See, the sovereign Lord. Um, that translation is basically the Hebrew tetragrammaton, so Lord. You see it all capital letter. Uh, but they put um, Adonai Yahweh. And since Lord means Adonai, you can't translate Lord, Lord. So some translations will have sovereign Lord. Um, some translations, I think that NAV 84 might have had this sometimes too, is Lord God might be the way they translate it. Okay, so yours says Lord God. Literally, it says Adonai, which is usually the word the Hebrews would substitute for Lord because they didn't want to say Yahweh. So they had a little marginal footnote. Whenever you see Yahweh, read Adonai. But here, when Isaiah says Adonai, Yahweh or Jehovah, some try to translate it. Your translation will have a different title, but it basically means the, the Lord who is sovereign, who is over all others. The Lord comes with power. He rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. Now we get to some pictures of uh, the king. Who, remember, there's a herald. The king is coming. He's being heralded. And when the king comes, it says he's got a reward and a recompense. Anybody have a different translation there? Other than reward and recompense? I'm a little fuzzy on what recompense means. Yeah, so recompense. Something he's earned. Something he's acquired because of his work. 
Remember, he's made a payment with his hand. So he's fought the battle for us, and now he has in his possession the fruits of his labor, and that's what it means. So if a king fought a battle and he won it and the warfare was over, he'd be marching with the plunder of the war, the, the people he'd taken captive, the people he set free, all of those belong to him. And that's what it's getting at here, that now that he comes with power, he's not just um, coming as someone that needs to recover what is his own, he's won the battle. So look, your God comes is really a, a cry of, he's got the victory. And as his people, he's our God, we are his, part of his reward. So when it says his reward is with him, he's marching along and you're part of that victory parade with your God. As, as Paul says, you've been seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. Um, he calls us his own. We are his sheep, as we're going to see in the next verse, and he's leading his flock along. Also, captives in his train. Different prophecies will speak of that aspect too, that he's conquered the enemy. The devil's being paraded around as a loser. And all the things and the riches that he's won for us are with him in his hand to pour out his blessings to us. So when Isaiah says, here's your God, look, he comes with power. Think of the resurrected, ascended Lord Jesus. Think of him pouring out his gifts and shepherding his flock. Because that's what we have next. Look at verse 11. He tends his flock like a shepherd. That's the reward he won. He, he won this flock, freed them. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. So what's the twofold picture like of the coming of God? Gathering his flock. Victorious. Triumphant, it says he's got a sovereign Lord, he's got a mighty arm. That's one half of it. But so gentle. Gentle. It's just Gathering the lambs. Tends his flock. Gently leads. Holds them, carries them, carries them close to his heart. So not only is the shepherd saying, come on flock, march along. He's, he is guiding his flock, carrying his flock, tending to their needs. So yeah, a gentle king. Isn't that kind of a twofold picture that only is found in Christ? A king who is both powerful and gentle. A king who could crush this world but decides to come in gentleness and care for them. And Jesus says that, right? I am the good shepherd. And the shepherd who cares for his sheep lays down his life for them. And because he laid down his life, he receives the reward. The, the, the souls purchased by himself, which now belong to him because he won the battle. That's a, one of the sections that I marked out. Um, and this whole section, I, as I said, I titled, Declare the Good News. I've got a review time for it. We could either pick up next time with a review or we could try to review everything now. What do we have for time? So what's that? Okay, maybe we can try to fit in that review so we can kind of enforce what we just looked at here. So review Isaiah 41 to 11. Recall the situation in ancient Israel at this time. So what was the situation like? Bad. Pretty bad. If you're gonna... Uncertain. Uncertain, yeah. So what, what does the future hold? It doesn't look good. It looks, I guess, maybe bleak. Is a word that captures both uncertain and bad. Okay. Share the events of today which should make us feel that like we are mere grass which withers and falls. So what events in the world today make us feel like grass? It's obvious we're turned as a nation as a whole is turned from God's word. Yeah, you know, you we're might deteriorating. You might say the glory of us <clears throat> as a a country perhaps has eclipsed. You know, we won the space race and all that, but now what's happening in the world? There are other major players that are starting to say, well, maybe you're not the top dog. Yeah, we have global warming. There's uh, threats of uh, changes. The world is always going to be changing. But ours doesn't seem to be changing for the good. Right, so if you look at the way that our situation is going in the world for us today. It's, 
It's changing towards immorality. So what was once considered immoral just 20 years ago, 30 years ago, is now not only acceptable, but demanded of people that you're supposed to support something that's immoral. So the glory of having a, a people that honor the Lord has is, is faded. The glory of the certainty of uh, having good markets and the, the certainty of having military supremacy is slowly fading. Right, so the, the quickly, does that make you feel like grass? Like, I thought we had a grasp on this, that you know, this would go on forever, but it doesn't. And maybe God can choose to turn things around for another generation or two. He did that in the Old Testament quite often. He said, you know, I'll prolong your days. But eventually that, that picture of the glory of mankind, it fades, no matter how high of a height it reaches. You know, we, we are blessed in that we are the wealthiest, strongest, most uh, powerful nation that has ever existed in the human history. You know, what other nation has claimed to have the technology and the, the military strength and presence around the world that we have and communications and all that, and yet that glory too is not meant to last forever. It will fade. And we're also one of the few countries that have the rights and privileges to be able to do what we do. Freedom of speech, sure. to practice religion publicly and openly, Summarized by persecution right now. Summarized by freedom. The freedoms that we enjoy can be lost too. Yep. So yeah, all these things remind us we are mere grass. Human ideas, human uh, formulations of government, human achievements, they all fade. We should feel like that. And then throw on top of that what Jesus says about the end times, right? There'll be wars and rumors of war. How quickly that could turn things around too. What is the good news? based on what we read in this chapter. Jesus Christ. Sure. It all centers on him. Uh, so what we found in this chapter, here is your God. So God is coming. Christ came. That's good news that God came. And when he came, what did he do and supply and offer and how did he act? Payment for sin. Yeah, the, the payment is from the Lord's hand. So that's good news that here's your God and he comes with payment in his hand for sin. He's done it. And it's, yeah, it's centered on Christ. Other aspects of the good news. Christ is the new covenant. What's that? Christ is the new covenant. Yep, the 